Thank God it's Friday. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Cannabis Chat for a Friday afternoon. I'm Jimmy Young in the Pro Cannabis Media Studios, and I'm joined by David Rabinovitz and from, from the Holliston Studios, right? The Holliston Studio, the COVID free Holliston Studio. COVID free. That's what it's all about. That's what we care about, among other things. Uh, David Rabinovitz, this is the Green Rush with David Rabinovitz. I'm just here to hold it together, I guess. I don't know. David, quite a week, and we already have Morgan Fox in our Zoom room. So why don't we bring in the communications director of the NCIA out of Washington, D.C. Morgan Fox joins me and David Rabinowitz. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us this Friday afternoon. Thanks for having me again. No, we enjoy it. And uh, I can't wait to see the little toddler running around in the background. All right. I just want you to know I'm setting you up for it. So. Oh, no. Luckily, I, I've got her placated, so we should be good. <laughs> What's your secret? Okay. Um, let's cut right to the chase because there was another interesting development in the, the, the quest for legalization and normalcy about cannabis in the United States in the government as the U.S. House this week approved the Medical Marijuana Research Act. And I, the only thing I take out of this, I guess, Morgan, is that a Republican and a Democrat actually were co-signers and sponsors on this, and they actually worked together on this one. Is that accurate? Well, I'm not too familiar with the exact working relationship uh, there. Um, what I can tell you is that the uh, person that you're referring to on the Republican side, Andy Harris, is yep. no friend of cannabis. Right. Uh, I honestly think that he's pushing this bill specifically so that he can show more harms associated with cannabis because he has been the architect for many anti-cannabis moves in Congress, particularly uh, attaching a rider to the uh, D.C. appropriations bill that prevents D.C. from being able to actually regulate cannabis, despite the fact that voters overwhelmingly approved legalization in 2014 by a measure of like 71 percent. Uh, so, you know, strange bedfellows. Uh, regardless, I'll take it because we do need more research and we do need to remove the barriers to research that are currently the cause of multiple lawsuits against the DEA from people like Sue Sisley and Lyle Craker and others, uh, because there has frankly been a log jam for the last uh, four or five years since the DEA said that they would allow more research and still have not approved a single additional producer. Uh, only in Washington, D.C., and you're right in the middle of it, and that's why I love talking to you so much, to be honest. Um, can we read anything into this maneuver by Andy Harris? Is he trying to get reelected? Is he trying to appease his constituents? What do you think his motivation is? Well, I mean, as a doctor, I think he is legitimately concerned about the potential effects of cannabis and really wants to uh, open up research for uh, uh you know, additional information. Uh, I, you know, personally, I think that he's trying to find more evidence that legalization is a bad idea. But that being said, you know, all the research that we've seen so far and all of the public health studies that we've seen in both legal states as well as larger epidemiological studies have shown that this is not a bad thing and in effect is a good thing. Uh, but, you know, it really doesn't matter. Uh, we do need more research and the more people we can get behind pushing those sort of bills forward, uh, the better. Absolutely. Anytime the two sides can actually work together, I feel so much better about our government. Um, I know David Rabinovitz has uh, at least one or two questions he'd like to run by you. So go ahead, David. 
So as I recall, there are a couple of people who sued the DEA over the, the fact they were holding up research, correct? Absolutely. Uh, you know, a couple of people that uh, I mentioned, uh, um, uh, Dr. Sue Sisley, who has been uh, running uh, attempts to get PTSD studies approved for a number of years, as well as uh, Dr. Lyle Craker from the University of Massachusetts, who uh, has also been trying to get a, a production uh, license for a number of years. Uh, because frankly, the only federally legal supplier of uh, you know, research allowable cannabis is uh, not only nowhere near the level of uh, what is commercially available in legal states, but it's not even close to the level of what most research scientists would be considering to be a usable substance matter. Now that's down the University of Mississippi, am I correct? That's correct. Right. Has the fact that, that uh, Mississippi... Uh, voters voted in a medicinal program. Has that helped you, you Mississippi at all get maybe more funding, maybe get better weed? I don't know. Is there any help at all? You know, I'm not really sure. I, I tend to think that uh, that program, because it is a completely federally controlled program through a single university, is not really going to be affected that much directly by the passage of Mississippi's uh, really groundbreaking uh, medical cannabis law. Um, but that being said, there are going to be a lot more uh, in-state suppliers now available. So uh, hopefully uh, uh, the people that run that program will be uh, reaching out. And if the Senate approves the bill that uh, we were just discussing, they will actually be able to do so much more easily. I mean, the big crux of that bill was to allow researchers to be able to access the products that consumers can access in uh, state legal uh, medical and adult use programs. And it makes zero sense to limit the research to products that are frankly inferior and uh, not research quality uh, across the board. Uh, when there are a number of uh, available avenues for uh, research grade material that are what consumers are actually using. And that's much more important than uh, what, uh, you know, rats are testing on for uh, <laughs> basically garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Hey, can you imagine, uh, this was a week ago. It feels like it was a year ago, but it was only a week ago that the House voted on the Moore Act, right? I mean, it's been a long week for me. Uh, what has been the... Um, atmosphere in Washington, D.C. since the Moore Act? And is there any chance, ugh, I know the answer to this, that the Senate will take it up? Well, I mean, I really have to point out that this is the first time that uh, either chamber of Congress has even brought a legalization measure to the floor, let alone uh, approved it. So, I mean, this is really momentous and is a good signifier of where the American people are, particularly since it passed in you know, the People's House. Uh, it's also very useful strategically in finding roll count. So advocates uh, such as NCIA and other groups are able to better determine uh, which lawmakers need a little bit of a nudge and which need a little bit more convincing and, uh, you know, who we should concentrate on when we're showing them the positive results of state legal cannabis programs, uh, whether they be medical or adult use. So in that sense, it's very, very useful strategically. Um, in another sense, it really provides an added impetus to the Senate to start thinking about these issues, whether they be comprehensive acts like uh, the Moore Act or more incremental issues like the Safe Banking Act and uh, uh, the research bill that we were just discussing or uh, improving access to veterans that uh, 
if the Senate does not at least allow hearings on these sort of things, they're going to look increasingly out of touch with the electorate. And uh, uh, particularly if we look at that uh, politically in terms of the recent election and the fact that uh, medical and adult use measures passed in three deeply conservative states, uh, conservative lawmakers really need to be looking at this and thinking that there are going to be political consequences on the horizon if they uh, impede efforts to move this legislation forward. You know, maybe they're not going to get on board 100%, but if they stand in the way of it, they are going to suffer the consequences. And it's increasingly likely that uh, they're going to be alienating a large portion of their base as well as potential swing voters. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. No. Did, did you, there was an article within the past couple of days that looked at some of the jurisdictions where Democrats lost and it determined that they think that, that they would have done better had the vote happened back around September or October before the election. And that marijuana was, the, the survey determined marijuana was a big issue in those areas. A number of people could have lost the election over the fact they didn't hold that vote. It really does look like the public is that much in favor. Yeah, the uh, decision to postpone that vote, I think, uh, was maybe a little bit misguided. But, you know, without really looking at some really granular polling data, it's difficult to determine whether that had an actual effect. Um, you know, the fact that the, uh, frankly, uh, you know, uh, fear mongering uh, and uh, heavily partisan messaging from some members of Congress against this vote uh was uh, a little bit misplaced, I think, and it really is out of step with the uh, the American voter. And you know, we looking at uh, besides the uh, the election, uh, look at the recent Gallup poll that showed that sixty eight percent of Americans nationally support uh, cannabis legalization, including a near majority of Republicans. And other polls, such as Pew, have shown a slight majority of Republicans in support. And when you really dig down into those uh, that data, uh, younger Republican voters are much more likely to support this. So really this comes down to an age demographic issue where people that are more familiar with legal cannabis systems and more familiar with cannabis consumers are increasingly likely to support changing our laws. And uh, the Senate uh, really needs to get in step with their constituents. Yeah, well, it, you know, every time one of these bills come up, even the stimulus, the Senate loves, the Senate Republicans love to harp on how many times cannabis has been inserted into a bill? And they, they don't look at anything about how much job, how many jobs it creates, how much payroll tax revenue, how many, how much health insurance, how many people now get covered. Right? That's one of the great things about this industry is if you want to make an impression locally when you're going for a license, you have to talk about the, what you're going to do for the citizens who are going to be working for you. Absolutely. And I think that this was uh you know, really a, uh, a tool for uh, some members of the GOP, not all of them, because we do have a lot of champions in that party. Um, but it was a, an easy get for people to say like, oh, cannabis is mentioned more times than jobs in this or that bill. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, you know, allowing safe banking for uh, cannabis businesses is a public safety and absolutely is an economic and COVID related issue. Uh, you know, both in terms of being able to uh, limit in-person exposure, but also in terms of being able to uh, protect small businesses and promote job creation. And uh, the fact that uh, this is being touted as something that is not related to COVID is frankly ridiculous. No, it's frankly the Republicans in the Senate. Anyway, uh, and the fact that they count the word cannabis 
more times than jobs and can't quite grasp the fact that cannabis leads to jobs just boggles my mind. I don't know how you guys in Washington, D.C., your fellow lobbyists, if you will, can talk to these Senate Republicans. What does it do they even listen? I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to talk to some of these guys that have dug their heels in and, and can't understand the fact that cannabis can actually help a lot of things, including jobs and the economic revival. I don't get it. Uh, we actually are very easily able to work with uh, people across the aisle, you know, and we, we have been doing so for years. We've got a number of uh, champions on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, sometimes uh, people get their marching orders from above and they're uh, regarding issues that are totally unrelated to cannabis. But unfortunately, we end up becoming the whipping boy. All right. I got one more big vote that happened last week that, uh, you know, because the Act passed, I'm not quite sure a lot of people understand that the U.N. Commission on Narcotic Drugs voted to remove cannabis resin from the category of the world's most dangerous drugs. That's a pretty huge, if, if it wasn't the Morac, this would have been a much more of a bigger deal, don't you think? It's not as big of a deal as we would like it to be. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it sounds very good and it is a positive movement in the right direction. You know, it signals that the international community is starting to recognize both the science and uh, the uh, on the ground practical policy realities involving uh, cannabis products. Uh, and it's also recognizing the fact that an increasing number of countries throughout the world are allowing cannabis in some form for either medical or adult use purposes. Uh, but it doesn't do enough to change what international policy is in order to relinquish us from, uh, as well as many other countries, from uh, the single convention on narcotics, which the US pushed really, really heavily uh, throughout the last uh, several decades. Um, but that being said, you know, I think that it is a, a really positive step in the right direction and we need to go further. This gives us the groundwork to be able to move further on an international basis so that we can start reshaping our, uh, our treaty obligations, uh, which, you know, frankly, most countries don't really uh, uh, care too much about anyway, but they should, uh, in some cases at least, maybe not in this one. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. And the fact that the World Health Organization has made these uh, these recommendations for several years now and are now finally being listened to, I think, is a, uh, a real sign of where we're going internationally. And also a, uh, it creates a sense of urgency or it should create a sense of urgency for the United States and for lawmakers here to start really considering comprehensive federal uh, legal changes th in regards to uh, the way that state legal cannabis markets are allowed to interact with the international market because quite frankly, we are about to get left behind. You know, even despite the fact that there has recently been another delay in uh, the uh, Mexico uh, legalization process, uh, we're looking at an increasing number of countries that are looking at uh, this subject and starting to say, you know, the prohibition mentalities that uh, we agreed to, and in some cases that were forced upon us because of the U.S. drug war and our international pressure that we put to uh, follow our path, uh, are starting to erode. Um, got, got one more question for you. You've got a, a new administration uh, eventually is going to show up. And actually, I know they're already working uh, in Washington, D.C. Have you reached out? Has the NCIA already reached out to uh, President elect Joe Biden and his group coming in to talk more about what they expect to do? Well, we've been working with the Biden uh, 
administration's team or their campaign team for uh, you know over a year now, uh, trying to influence their position and uh, provide them with the information that they need to develop a comprehensive drug policy plan with regards to cannabis. Uh, President-elect Biden is not quite on board yet with where we would like to be, but uh, uh, VP-elect uh, uh, Kamala Harris is absolutely on board with it as a uh, uh, the lead sponsor of the MORE Act in the Senate. And uh, as a person who has really championed this issue after a turnaround from being a prosecutor for years. And, uh, you know, I think that this administration uh, is kind of poised in a place to do a lot of things uh, executively to help the cannabis uh, reform movement, uh, even if it's not on board completely with full legalization. So I'm talking about uh, reasserting uh, the Moore Act, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, like reinstituting the Cole Memo uh, right. officially, yep. uh, appointing much more cannabis-friendly uh, cabinet members and agency heads uh, across the board. And I think that that's already happening, uh, you know, be it, uh, you know, potential DEA heads, potential DOJ heads, potential USDA heads, et cetera. Um, the administration could also, with the stroke of a pen, make it much easier for veterans to be able to access cannabis through the VA and be able to allow doctors to recommend cannabis through the VA uh, in states where it's legal. Uh, they could also remove a lot of the uh, really unfortunate uh, policies that are currently in place in our immigration system, which not only prevent people that are involved in completely legal, both nationally and statewide, uh, from uh, being able to travel within the United States if they're involved in the cannabis industry, but that also trigger deportation proceedings in uh, uh, the top five reasons to do that uh, and uh, interfere with people being able to obtain citizenship. So there are a number of things that the administration uh, can do directly uh, through their executive power to help alleviate some of the problems that have been caused by prohibition over the last few decades. Absolutely. More than block, like as always. Uh, great insight on what's going on in Washington, D.C. from the NCIA. I really do appreciate it when you join us, especially at the top of the show, because you, you kind of set the bar pretty high, if you will. And, and we appreciate that here. I, I do have to take my regular 420 break, um, but I thank you so much for joining us and look forward to hearing from you in the future. If I don't talk to you before the holidays, uh, have a great holiday season and a happy new year. Oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate having me on. You bet. Great. There Thank goes Morgan you. Fox. Thank you so much. Uh, and David, you know, this is our 420 time. I'm going to ask David, where did the 420 code begin? Do you remember? I'm kind of like putting you Ian on the Raphael High School. All right. And what's the Boy, name? I've of the been group? on the show with you long enough, Jimmy. That's one thing that's gotten pounded in. <laughs> they were the Waldos. They used the to Waldos. be the they used to meet at the Louis Pasteur statue after school to catch a little buzz. And law enforcement picked up on it that there was public consumption of cannabis going on. So they picked up the 420 call and it was adopted by law enforcement to basically alert their own staffers that, oops, you better get down to the corner of Vine and, and Main Street because sure enough, uh, there's public consumption of weed going on. And then the cannabis community figured out what was going on grasped at it. They celebrate April 20th on the calendar. They celebrate 20 past four. I don't want to say on a daily basis, but we do here at Pro Cannabis Media. It gives us an excuse to play a song that was part of my youth. Uh, by the way, David, since we are kind of age appropriate, did you ever know of Jonathan Edwards before you saw him sing Shanty? No. 
Okay. <laughs>